Well, it's a privilege to uh, be able to, to bring the message this evening. Um, naturally uh, enough in the season of Epiphany, we're going to be thinking about the gospel text that we've just read about the wise man. Um, but all of our um, uh, messages this semester on a Wednesday evening are going to be from the Gospel of Matthew. So this is also uh, the beginning, if you like, of a series of reflection for us from the, the, the same biblical book as we move through the semester. Well, in both Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, there are surprising characters who crop up in the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. In Luke, the surprising characters are the shepherds. The first announcement of Christ's birth is given to those people who were regarded as the lowest of the low within Israel. It is those from among the poor and marginalized who are witnesses of the joy of heaven in the form of the heavenly choir and who are the first to visit the newborn child. The last are made first in the kingdom of God. And as we think about the wise men this evening, we could very much continue with the same theme. True, these individuals are not poor like the shepherds or uneducated like the shepherds, but they are still very odd choices as witnesses of the birth of Israel's Messiah. The word magi, which is how they are described in Matthew's Gospel, is not one that is used positively in other places in the Bible. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 12 names as magi the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers who are not able to interpret the dream of their master, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but God reveals the meaning to his true servant, Daniel. In the New Testament, the only other magus who appears is Elimus, the attendant of Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul of Cyprus, who opposes the gospel and who is struck blind by Paul in Acts 13. To be a magus is not a good thing. Even if you have considerable knowledge, it is godless, false knowledge. It is the kind of learning of which those who are among God's people are to steer clear. Yet as our reading from Isaiah 60 foretells, God chooses and uses these mysterious Gentile visitors. They are outsiders, people who might be expected not to understand and not to take seriously the granting of a Messiah to Israel. Yet they are found worshipping the infant Jesus, and their doing so foreshadows the revelation that will come to the Gentiles after Christ's death and resurrection when the gospel is preached to all. The truth about Jesus will be for the Gentiles also, and the wise men are the very first to be part of that. God is truly the God of the Jews, and yet through Christ, the Gentiles will be admitted to his people. But there is another aspect of the story of the wise men that is also very important. They are the ones who worship the infant Jesus. They are the ones who bring in gifts. When we think of the wise men, we think of gifts and the whole process of giving that is such a focus of our own customs and practices at this time of year. But of course, in bringing their gifts, the wise men are not initiating something. They are not the first to give a gift. 
Instead, they are reciprocating. For God has already given the greatest gift of all. As the prophet Isaiah puts it, For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6 The gift is Jesus himself, and even if they do not fully understand what they are doing, the wise men respond to God's gift by bringing before Jesus in worship gifts of his own. They are able to respond appropriately to who Jesus is. Even though they expect the palace and are instead led to a humble dwelling, they still recognize that this baby is the king given by God, and they bring their own gifts in worship of him. And so the other theme that the story of the wise men places before us is that of giving back to God. In Jesus, God has given us everything, even his own son. And so we ought to give back. What will you, what will I, give back to God? What will you, what will I, give back to God? Now that's a trickier question than it sounds like at first blush. The wise men could bring gifts directly to Jesus here on earth, but Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We can't go to Bethlehem and find the baby like they did. And as the psalmist puts it, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, Psalm 24 and verse 1. Giving back to God is a bit like trying to find the perfect gift for the person who has everything. And while we know it's really important that we bring our gifts of money to the offering in church each week, none of us actually thinks that the God we worship is short of cash. God is not a bit short of dollars and cents this week and in need of a handout from us. See, gift-giving is a metaphor from human social practice that helps us genuinely to understand our relationship with God. And so there are ways in which giving back to God really is like giving to another human being. But there, is all, there are also ways in which giving back to God and giving in God's kingdom are different from giving to another human being. Now, one of the ways in which Jesus helped people to get a handle on that, to think about the differences between the ways of this world and the ways of the kingdom, was to tell people stories, to tell them parables. And I have a parable-like story for you this evening about giving back to God. It's actually a true story, not an imaginative reflection, but ever since it happened, it's spoken to me about one aspect of God's ways. So the story is this. There was a young child, a young boy, not more than about four or five years old. And his aunt and uncle were misguided enough to give him a harmonica as a Christmas gift. <laughs> the harmonica came with an instruction book, but of course the, the, the child was too young for any of that and, and loved the harmonica, but all he could do was blow into the harmonica and, and kind of make a noise with it couldn't actually make any steps towards playing it. But this child's mother um, 
she led the worship in their local church by playing the piano each week and one week shortly into the new year the child announced to his mother that he was going to play with her in church on Sunday so she didn't want to hurt the child's feelings and she went along uh, with what he said and hoped that by Sunday he would have forgotten but Sunday came and he hadn't forgotten at all he picked out the biggest hymn book he could find from the shelf and insisted on going to church and sitting down next to the piano and playing the harmonica while his mother played the hymns on the piano and of course he couldn't play the harmonica actually what he did was make a lot of noise that um, didn't fit in with the tunes of the hymns at all and so his mother was really anxious about how are the congregation going to react are people going to be upset and annoyed are they going to see this as deeply disruptive to worship and disrespectful in some way but when the end of the service came an interesting thing happened the congregation was a small congregation it, a number of the members were older ladies and at the end of the service almost all of them made a point on their way out of stopping by the piano and speaking to the child and telling the child how much they'd enjoyed hearing his playing how wonderful his playing had been how much they were looking forward to hearing him playing the next week <laughs> so this went on for quite a while until the child kind of forgot and got tired of it and, and, and then no longer demanded to play every Sunday but that just seemed to me uh, a little like the kingdom of God you know if you had to ask in that story who who understands God who behaves in a way that reflects God's character uh, I think it's those uh, older ladies who who understood that um, the the child was doing something that expressed joy and spontaneity that his playing was wholehearted even if technically it was really bad and that it was beautiful because it was offered wholeheartedly those older ladies didn't base their response to what happened on the quality of the child's musicianship they based their response on what they understood about why the child was doing this and they based it on their affection for their child and on their sense that despite playing all of the wrong notes that this would be an acceptable offering in the eyes of God and the point is this aren't all our attempts to give back to God a bit like this story okay? it doesn't matter what we have to give heaven has better to offer if instead of tuneless harmonica playing we were to substitute the most beautiful choir or a perfect performance of Bach's finest church music it would still be feeble compared to what can be produced by the heavenly host okay. God does not accept our gifts joyfully 
because they're so superlatively wonderful compared to what heaven has to offer. The same is true not only of our artistic efforts, but also of our good deeds, our faltering attempts to do what is right before God. About 450 years ago, John Calvin was preaching to a congregation in Geneva and trying to explain the same truth. Calvin says this, Picture a child who is seeking to obey his father. When his father asks him to do something, he will accept what the child does, even though the child may not understand what he is doing. The child may even break something in the process, and yet the father will not fret about the broken object when he sees his child's affection and willingness to obey. But if a person hires a servant, they will expect him to perform his task perfectly. Why? Because the servant is going to receive wages, and therefore the servant cannot afford to ruin what has been committed to his hands. If the task is not done well, the master will not be content with it. Our Lord, speaking of the days of gospel grace, says that he will accept our service, just as a father accepts the obedience of his child, even if all that is done is of no value. That is to say, he does not accept it because it is perfect, for it is not, but he bears with us out of his abundant mercy. He shows himself to be so bountiful and kind to us by accepting what we do as if it were fully pleasing to him, although there is no inherent merit or worth in our works at all. Thus we can have the freedom and the courage to serve God. We can know that God will bless all that we do for him, because whatever is wrong with our offerings is washed away in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What strikes me about this sermon illustration from hundreds of years ago is how fresh it remains despite all the years that have passed since the sermon was preached. We are the children of God and when we give wholeheartedly, sincerely and with joy, this matters more than the quality of what is given. And this illustration can easily be updated to speak in a contemporary way about who we are as the children of God. All over the world, young children produce drawings and paintings that are presented to parents who keep them and display them. In Western culture, at least, that's often on the refrigerator, it seems. But parents do not do this because they think they have the next Picasso or Rembrandt on their hands. Very few of the pictures have any artistic merit whatsoever, but they are cherished because of who produced them. It does not matter that really they are just a few daubs of paint that don't represent anything very clearly. These paintings are precious to us because the person who made them is precious to us. And so it is with all our giving back to God. For God is so far above us and his ways so far from our ways that anything we offer is more like the gift of a young child to a parent than it is like the gift of an adult to another adult. What we give is precious more because of who gives it than it is because of what is given. When Martin Luther died, there was found in the room where he passed away a scrap of paper with a few sentences written on it, the last of which was, we are beggars, this is true. These were the last words the great reformer ever wrote. 
They're enigmatic words, but most scholars take them to point to Luther's sense that whoever we are, we always come before God empty-handed like a beggar. As Timothy George puts it, quotes, we have no legs of our own on which to stand. The truth is that in terms of what we might offer to God, we have nothing that God actually needs. Our gifts back to God are always like the tuneless playing of a harmonica, always like the broken object of which Calvin speaks, always like the scrappy painting fixed to the refrigerator. Hear the facts again. It's impossible for you or I or anyone else to bring to God any gift that God needs. But hear also the good news. There may be nothing we can bring as a gift that God needs. But God is like those older ladies in the story I told you about the harmonica playing of the child. God is like the father of whom Calvin speaks, who does not mind that in the process of his child's obedience, something gets broken. God is like the parent who joyfully receives and displays the painting of a young child. There is nothing you can give to God that God needs, but you do have exactly the gift that God most wants. The gift that God wants, all that the creator of the universe desires, is you. You have nothing God needs, but you are everything that God desires. You and your life are the apple of God's eye, and you know that is true because he has given you the most precious gift he has, which is the life of his son. And he wants from, what he wants from you in return is simply that you give to him yourself. You, nothing more and nothing less. And the extraordinary thing is that if you give yourself to God in this way, then although God really does not need your time, your talents, or your money to accomplish God's purposes in the world, these things will actually turn out to be strangely powerful when they're offered as part of the giving of yourself. By his grace, God will use your work at your hands to do his work in the world. By his grace, yours will be the feet that are beautiful because they bring good news. By his grace, God will use you to serve your neighbor. By his grace, you will be used to set free the captives. By his grace, you will help to fight injustice. By his grace, you will bring comfort to those who mourn. By his grace, you will resist all the works of the evil one. And by his grace, you are baptized and you are part of his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if I am making this sound again like a question of our great and mighty deeds, then I'm not saying it rightly. I'm not talking about what we will do per se, but about what God will do in us and through us. And I'm not talking about something different from the tuneless harmonica playing, the broken vessel, or the scrappy painting displayed on the refrigerator. I'm talking about God taking and using precisely those things in all their weakness and inadequacy. Three times the Apostle Paul prayed for God to take away a thorn in his flesh, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul was talking about a physical infirmity 
and I'm talking about uh, our moral deeds. And so the two things are not exactly the same, but everything about our condition as fallen human beings partakes of weakness and inadequacy. Think even about the wise men. We do not usually think of them as inadequate and weak figures. They are rich and they bring exotic gifts. But as I explained at the beginning of the sermon, they are very odd servants for God to choose. They are not part of God's people, they are outsiders, and their learning is in the arts of superstition forbidden to Israel. And yet they are obedient to God, and by his grace God uses even their astrology. They understand the significance of the star, and they make the journey when they might have decided it was just too difficult and stayed at home. They follow the light of the star, and they are led to the light of Christ. We have no way of knowing how many other magi noted the appearance of the star. Perhaps there were many, for the idea that the birth of great men was accompanied by phenomena in the night sky was a common idea in the Gentile world. But the roads to Bethlehem were not clogged with hordes of magi. This particular group travel, and in doing so, they make themselves available for God to work. Are you and am I available for God to use as they were? Are we too being led towards the light of Christ? The right question is not really what we should give to God as if we had, have something God needs. The right question is whether we are ready to give back to God the one thing that God truly desires, which is ourselves, and whether we are ready to be used by him to do his work in the world. The Magi were ready when many in Israel were not. Are you? Am I? May God show us this epiphany season how it is that he wants to take our lives and use them. The ways in which God will use us will be many and varied, but it will always involve the willingness of a joyful heart. By God's grace, may we find that we do indeed have such joyful hearts as we hear again the story of God's love for us and of the indescribable gift of his Son. Rejoice, for Christ is born of the Virgin Mary, and God is willing and ready to receive our hearts as the most precious offerings that could be brought by those who worship the newborn King. Thanks be to God. Amen.